This week, we're going to be talking about the British Grand Prix. We're going to be talking about the history of the British Grand Prix, the various tracks that it's raced at. In our tech corner, we're going to be talking about brakes and all of the evolution of stopping the car. We'll then take and go into practice qualifying the race and also we'll talk about the goings-on at the track outside of the racing so stick around you're in for a great ride welcome you are listening to f1 great check the epic podcast for all things formula one where we discuss technology history news and perspective with your hosts scott Vick and corey green all right, it's time for F1 break check. So this week, the circus invaded the wonderful home of the British Grand Prix, Silverstone, in the heart of Britain. This is a, a more or less a home race for most of the teams because seven out of the 10 teams are all located within a 200-mile radius of Silverstone. Even the quote-unquote French team in Alpine and the Austrian team in Red Bull are all actually located in England. So for all intents and purposes, these are home races for these teams. Real quick history on the British Grand Prix. Uh, the British Grand Prix is just like uh, Monaco and the fact that it has been on the calendar every single year of the Formula One World Championship. Uh, the only difference is, is that unlike Monaco, which is raced around more or less the exact same streets for the entire history, the British Grand Prix has moved around a little bit during the course of its existence. The tracks have differed from Silverstone, Brands Hatch, and a few times at Antry, which is in, I believe it's in the southern part of Britain, but only a handful of races were ever run at Antry. The British Grand Prix started off at Silverstone. The original track was quite a bit different from the existing track as we know it today. A lot of the really iconic corners that we now know today didn't actually exist on the original Silverstone circuit. And then in 1955, the it moved to Antry or Aintree. I'm not sure that I'm even pronouncing that right. It's been so long since I've had to look <laughs> that up. And then it bounced back and forth, alternating between Silverstone and Aintree every year until 1962. Two, I think it was. Starting in 63, it started alternating between Silverstone and Brands Hatch until we got into 1987 uh, when it permanently moved to Silverstone and it's been at Silverstone ever since. The reason why uh, they, for many, many years, the Grand Prix bounced back and forth between Silverstone and Brands Hatch as the cars got faster and faster, eventually determined to be too dangerous. There wasn't enough like runoff area and everything. And because parts of the circuit are actually located like in a, in a forest very similar to the a large part of the Nordschliff, part of the Nürburgring. So there wasn't a whole lot of room to expand, whereas with Silverstone being built on an old abandoned World War II airfield had tons and tons of room to uh, increase the uh, runoff areas and to increase the safety measures. What kind of safety so, measures? Uh, were implemented there. A number of things is like, like I said, for the, the biggest thing is, is like the runoff areas because uh, Brands Hatch has, uh, especially in, in, even in some of the faster corners, had pretty small runoff areas that um, as the years went by and the cars got faster and faster, those runoff areas and the gravel traps and things like that weren't wide enough to allow for the higher momentum 
of the cars when they left the track. And because of like, again, like I said, because of the, where Brands Hatch is located at, uh, parts of the circuit are actually, you know, run through a forest and everything. And so because of conservation and they couldn't expand the track beyond these certain limits and everything. So, but with Silverstone, they were able to do things like move grandstands, reprofile corners and do things like that in order to make it much, much safer than the old brand's hatch. Okay. So Silverstone. So this, one of the most fantastic tracks on the calendar. I think it's a race that just about every single team circles on the calendar every year. Again, like I said, because the vast majority of the teams are located in Great Britain. So this is kind of like their home race, but even some of the other teams that are located outside of Great Britain. So like your Ferrari, your Alpha Tauri, your Saubers that are located in other parts of Europe because of the pipeline of talent. Although now it's not as prevalent, but especially like in the early days of Formula One and even leading up into the, you know, 90s and early 2000s, the vast majority of people working in Formula One were all from Great Britain and the United Kingdom because it was the heart of Formula One. Admittedly, because the sports become more worldwide and everything, but now the talent pool is drawn from a lot of different areas, you know, all the way around the world. I mean, it's like it used to be an American working in Formula One was pretty much unheard of. Whereas now it's like we've got Americans at in like Zach Brown and well, previously at Alpine, Otmar, who was running Alpine, was also American. We have a tremendous pool of talent that's drawn from all across the world now that we don't didn't have once upon a time when it was still very much a British pipeline of talent. <laughs> but I think, like I said, I think Silverstone is probably one of the best circuits, not just from a history perspective, but just it. the part of the reason why it has such a great history is because it has become such a iconic world-class circuit. I mean, you have a, you know, some of the most amazing and well-known corners in all of motor racing. People know the names like Beckett's and Maggot's and Cops and Woodcoat and the, and even more recently, the Hamilton Straight. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like you have the Hamilton Straight, you know, because you have a British driver in Lewis Hamilton who has won at Silverstone more than any other driver in the, in the history of Formula One. And I believe he's tied for the most wins on a single circuit with his seven wins at Silverstone. It's amazing that to believe that it's become such a great circuit. Now, I mean, it's not. Unlike Catalonia in Spain or, you know, even Monaco, the streets of Monaco, where you have a lot of elevation changes and things like that and up and down, Silverstone is mostly just a flat track owing to its its predecessor being a, a World War II airfield and everything. The lack of elevation changes has done nothing to t diminish in any way the character of the track and and what makes the track so fantastic i agree this this one in monaco are my two favorites they're definitely on my bucket list <laughs> yes absolutely yeah i think it, it's definitely something that should be on everyone's bucket list uh, yeah. is, is to you know is to is to see a race at you know silverstone and uh, and silverstone unlike a lot of other tracks which are owned by single entities you know sometimes a corporation sometimes you know an individual um this the 
uh, Silverstone is actually owned and maintained by the British Racing Drivers Club. Uh, and they're the ones who have been maintaining the the lease went to the club in 19, I think it was either 52 or 53 is when they took over. And they've been the ones who have been the custodians of Silverstone for its life ever since taking over. And I think that because of that, because of being owned by racing drivers, that's part of what has kept the flavor and the 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 soul of Silverstone intact over all these years. Exactly right. So some of the notable winners that we've got, uh, we have to talk about some of the notable winners because we've talked about before, you know, how for drivers, it's always very important for them to win their home race. And Silverstone is no exception because for the longest time, with all the teams being located in Britain, enormous number of drivers in Formula One that have come from United Kingdom, there's something even more special about a British driver winning the British Grand Prix. And we've seen that over the years, you know, how, how impressive it is. I mean, it's like, you know, you've got things, you know, like Lewis Hamilton, you know, crowd, you know, stopping the car, climbing out and crowd surfing. <laughs> <laughs> after after his wins uh you know you saw the birth of mansellmania when nigel mansell won there johnny herbert who only won two races in formula one but being a british driver he'll tell you that the greatest win that he ever had was when he won at silverstone in 96 you know it's yeah the race was kind of gifted to him when hill and schumacher came together and knocked each other out of the race <laughs> and he kind of inherited it it's one of the most iconic photos and bits of footage is the other drivers raising johnny herbert up on their shoulders on the podium and just the sheer joy on his face of winning the british yeah. grand prix is just unequaled <laughs> It's just amazing, well, but it's not only the drivers, but the the crowd gets so into if somebody from Britain is leading the race or is in contention, they're in it a thousand percent. It's just so great to see the crowd being that much into who's leading and where everybody is on the track. Yep, absolutely. Yes, the British the British love their British drivers. That is that is for sure. <laughs> That's so true. Right? <laughs> Regardless of team. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Regardless of team, you know, so cuz I mean even when Mansell was driving now he never won the British Grand Prix while he was at Ferrari, but even one when he made the move to Ferrari, the British racing fans still absolutely adored him mansell's a whole nother topic one of these podcasts will uh we'll dive into nigel mansell because i personally am a huge fan of nigel mansell he was a phenomenal driver he was tougher than all get out but i don't think he gets you know as much credit for the things that he did in a racing car than what other drivers have gotten but we'll get into that at, at another time a couple more of the uh, more notable drivers who have won the british grand prix you have jim clark the late great Jim Clark, who won it five times. You had Sterling Moss and Jackie Stewart both won it twice. Jensen Button, unfortunately, never was able to win the, the, the British Grand Prix, the fifth being the best that he was ever able to do. And even during the Sky Sports telecast over the weekend, <laughs> he lamented about how that was the one race that he really wanted to win more than anything. And it was very not sad, but very. I don't. I'm not even quite sure what word I'm. I'm looking for here. But he lamented about how much 
he wishes that he could have at least won at least once. And all right, so moving on to our tech corner. This week, we're going to be talking about brakes. Last week, we were, were talking about the tires, the part that rotates around the brakes. And this week, we're going to take, we're going to talk about the brakes and their stopping power. And we're going to talk a little bit about the evolution of the brakes. When you think of brakes in Formula One, what's the first thing that jumps to mind? Fire. <laughs> <laughs> Fire, lockup. You know, yeah, exactly. there, there, there's a lot of things that can be associated with the brakes of a Formula One car. Now, a lot of people are going to be familiar with the brakes that are on their car. The difference between a, a modern day sports car, in most cases, and a Formula One car, there's very few similarities. Kind of the main components themselves are more or less the same, but they're the same more or less just in kind of overall design but the materials and all of the technology and everything that goes into a formula one brake is tremendously different first of all let's talk about the evolution of the the brakes in formula one so 1950s when the formula one world championship first started all of the cars used drum brakes big difference between drum brakes and disc brakes is, is mostly the way that the brakes are set up so whereas with disc brakes you have the pads will take and press in on a rotating disc with drum brakes you actually have a drum that rotates and you have brake pads that take and push out against the inside of the drum well because of the being a closed system of course it takes and it generates a lot more heat and with the increasing speeds of formula one the drum brakes became very very inefficient and they didn't last long mid 50s a lot of the teams started moving to disc brakes simply because they were much more efficient at dissipating the heat at stopping the cars things like that some teams that were actually quite resistant to it in fact ferrari up until 1958 still continued to use drum brakes they were still very adamant about sticking with drum brakes surprisingly enough yeah which is funny because they they are so much in the forefront of technology and pushing the boundaries, at least the drum brakes that they were so reluctant. <laughs> well, you know, it's like that. That's one thing that, that's very funny about the history of Ferrari is that, you know, everybody thinks of Ferrari as being this, you know, great technologically advanced company and everything. And from the 1980s on, even during the 60s and 70s, they were much more technologically savvy. But it has been well noted, and even the great Brock Yates, phenomenal automotive journalist who wrote for Car and Driver for years, in his biography of Enzo Ferrari, he famously detailed how Ferrari was very reluctant to embrace new technologies in the early years of Formula One. Like I said, they were one of the last teams to ever switch to disc brakes. They were the last to embrace the mid-engine layout of the cars. Of other things that they were, believe it or not, they were very reluctant to change. And it wasn't until later in life when Enzo started relinquishing more and more of control on the Formula One team that the team started actually becoming much more on the forefront of the technology. It's been out of print for a little while, but if you're ever like at a used bookstore or something, if you can find a copy of Brock Yates' book, Ferrari, The Man, The Myth, The Legend, it is an absolutely fascinating read into the mindset of El Commodore. Mid to late 50s, teams start uh, embracing the disc brakes, which like we talked about just a little bit ago, changes the whole 
architecture of the way that the brakes work, but by their design, because of they're much more capable of dissipating heat, the friction materials were much more able to arrest the speed of the car, and they were embraced by the teams as the speeds accelerated and got higher and higher the need to stop the cars and stop them efficiently and be able to do so over a long period of time over the course of a race. That led to the rise of the disc brake technology that we know and is now on almost every passenger car in the world. The thing to keep in mind with the difference between Formula One brakes and your average Toyota Camry's brakes is in the materials and the design of the brake systems themselves. Basically, Formula One brake system consists of two master cylinders, one for the front, one for the rear, so that, that way, they, not just the teams, but the drivers themselves actually will now have a knob on the steering wheel where they can take and they can actually adjust the brake bias between the front and the rear of the car. So going into certain corners, if they need more braking power on the front of the car, to keep the weight on the front wheels, they can take and they can adjust that on the fly to add more braking force to the front of the car or to the back of the car, depending upon where at, where they're at on the circuit and things like that. So that's the the need for the, the dual brake master cylinders. You have the brake disc, just like you have on your standard road car, but the materials nowadays are completely different. And we'll get into that in just a minute. You have the brake caliper itself, which totally different design, totally different materials. Up until the mid-1980s, there wasn't a lot of difference between road car brakes and F1 brakes. They were all made out of cast iron with cast iron calipers with standard, in most cases, asbestos and ceramic friction material for the disc pads. So long comes 1986, Brabham takes and introduces the first carbon brakes, which Unlike the previous brakes, which often made out of either one piece of cast iron, or in some cases, they some of the teams had started to experiment with two-piece designs where the outer part of the disc brake that the brake pads touched and used to slow it down were one piece, and then the center piece that was attached to the car would actually be a separate piece. So this allowed the, the teams to change out the brake discs much quicker when necessary and it also by using different materials they were able to use lighter materials on the inside hub this reduced the weight of the discs themselves and it also allowed for greater heat dissipation by being able to use you know other materials like aluminum and things like that where it that can dissipate the heat much faster than the standard iron hubs Going back to the, uh, what I was saying, though, about Brabham introducing the carbon brakes, though, is these are brake discs and brake pads that are actually made out of compressed carbon fiber that is heated gradually over a long, long period of time in order to make them super strong. But being made out of carbon, they're super, they're like half the weight of the old standard iron discs. And they also have the capability of being able to dissipate the heat and cycle through heating up, cooling down, things like that much, much faster. In fact, the same material that goes into the carbon brake discs and brake pads is the same materials that were developed for the heat shields on the space shuttle. That's craziness. That much friction <laughs> generates that much heat. 
Yes, it does. It's because that's a standard Formula One, like you, you were saying, fire. On any given race weekend, you can see in certain corners that when the camera angle is at just the right angle and everything, you can literally see the, the brake discs glowing because of the amount of heat. Under standard road going conditions, your average disc brake, you know, will get up to, you know, three, you know, 250, 300 degrees Fahrenheit, whereas the carbon discs used by Formula One can get as hot as a thousand degrees Fahrenheit when it's under its heaviest loads. And, and hence the reason why they glow bright red <laughs> when they're warmed up, working at maximum efficiency. Yeah, even when you see pitting, so, when they pit, though, you'll see them smoking. Or oh, yeah, you know, if they have a DNF, if the car fails for whatever reason, unless it's an engine, failing that, <laughs> the very first thing you'll see is smoke off the off the calipers. Yes, exactly. And especially if the, if the car failed at a point where the brakes were working at like maximum efficiency, at that point, they're so hot. And because they don't have the cooling effect, if they don't have the cooling from the car moving, and they're still that hot where they're still, you know, eight, nine hundred degrees Fahrenheit, they will, they will literally catch on fire. <laughs> <laughs> And sometimes they'll even catch on fire if the cooling, for whatever reason, isn't brake duct gets damaged or something, or during an incident, picks up something from the track or something. Because the teams run the ducting around the brakes to such maximum efficiency that and such tight tolerances that if something interrupts that cooling airflow... It, it literally, the, the brakes will literally destroy themselves because they're not able to get all of the cooling that they need because the because of the ways that the team set them up. One of the things that Brabham learned, though, very early on with they still had a lot of problems with the brakes overheating and getting a lot of brake fade in the original design of the brake discs because they simply just weren't ventilated correctly. It wasn't until the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, that McLaren figured out how to ventilate the discs. And by ventilate, we mean they will actually make the carbon disc and then they will actually drill holes through the side of the disc. Basically, you have almost kind of like a sandwich where you will have the carbon face on each side of the rotor and then the inside of it will basically be hollow with small you know with like veins of carbon in between to keep the two faces attached but by doing that it takes and it allows all of the hot gases and everything from the brake disc to take and exit out so it allows much more efficient cooling and mclaren was the first one to develop that ventilation in the carbon discs and they used them to great effect when they were storming the F1 world and winning all those races. The last thing that we'll talk about is the brake calipers themselves. So the brake calipers, in strong contrast to most modern-day cars, most modern-day road cars have what are called slide brakes, which means that the there's one part of the brake that has little pins in it that take and slide back and forth based upon the hydraulic pressure. But one of the differences is with a modern-day Formula One car is they will actually have what's called a monoblock multi-piston caliper, which means that instead of having just two single points 
where the disc where they're pressing on the disc pads the formula one cars will actually have multiple points where the brake pad is pushing into the face of the, of the rotor and if you look at a formula one caliper each one of the pistons where they apply to the brake pads they will actually be larger on the leading surface and they will actually get smaller as they move towards the back. And this takes and helps the brake pads wear much more evenly. And it also takes and spreads the, the pressure out across the face of the disc brake so that it makes it much, much more efficient. And then the brake caliper itself is made out of a single block of aluminum that is then machined to fit the pistons and all the ancillary systems and everything. And also for the uh, the most efficient uh, routing of the brake fluid through the caliper itself. Because the aluminum lithium composite that they use for the brake discs is because of the way that it's designed, it's all about heat management. And with the aluminum lithium that they use, it is much, much easier to manage the heat on the brake discs. All right, so last thing we're going to take and talk about before we're going to move on to talking about practice qualifying in the race at Silverstone. Um, is the brake configuration is if you look on the, the uh, most modern day passenger and road cars, the calipers are usually situated in a vertical position, either in front of the leading front edge of the disc or in the back edge of the disc. Whereas with Formula One cars, most of them are positioned just slightly off the bottom of the disc rotor. And this takes and helps keep the center of gravity for the discs at a much lower point as opposed to a road car. And then if you've ever looked at when they're doing a tire change during a pit stop or when their wheels and tires off or in the garage and everything, you'll notice that basically the entire brake assembly is usually covered in some kind of carbon fiber shroud. And there's a reason for that because teams will actually use these shrouds and they'll use different tuning vanes and things like that inside of these shrouds that what it's doing is it's channeling air into the whole brake assembly to take and maximize the braking performance optimum temperature because one thing that we didn't touch upon that i'll mention real quick is that the one thing with carbon discs as opposed to the cast iron discs that most of us are familiar with is the carbon discs do have to have some warmth built into them in order to operate at maximum efficiency. When they're cold, they are not as good at stopping as a standard passenger car. And you can drive down a hundred feet and you can press on the brakes and it's going to operate pretty much exactly the same way as if you'd been driving for 20 or 30 minutes. But you'll, you'll, and you'll hear them talk about a lot during the race or during practice and qualifying, you'll hear the talking about, you know, getting the brakes warmed up and things like that. And so the carbon ceramic brakes that they use have to have that certain amount of heat in them. But at the same time, you can't have them overheating. So the teams will actually use all kinds of tuning vanes and everything inside of these shrouds in order to be able to take channel air to the parts of the brake that need it the most. And they can take, they can change the size and the direction of these tuning vanes based upon weather conditions. If the ambient temperature is much colder, they don't need to channel as much air into the discs as they would, like say, at a super hot circuit like Abu Dhabi or Jeddah where they're racing in the desert or in Singapore where you have such a high temperatures and high humidity. 
they need to be able to get much more air into the brake system to keep it in that optimum operating range. I've actually heard people comment saying that, hey, they're just using good old drum brakes. And it's like, no, they're not drum brakes. They're (laughs) shrouds that are going around the disc brakes that are hidden underneath. And a lot of times when you're just watching it on TV, you're not going to see that. But if you go and check like some of the tech websites and everything that talk about different part aspects of Formula One, some of them have, or go do a Google search for F1 brakes. There are some absolutely excellent pictures out there that will show modern day Formula One brake assemblies with all of the cooling shrouds and everything removed and brake ducts and everything removed and where you can see the actual caliper and the brake, you know, disc itself. All right, then. Well, enough about that. Let's get into the race. Yeah. Starting off on Friday, talking through uh, the practice sessions. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) How surprised were you? What was your biggest surprise? Albon being so fast. He was the fastest in the straight. Oh, my God. Williams is continuing to surprise. Williams are are making those small incremental changes, but they're having a huge impact on their overall race pace. It's looking so good. Albon is just (laughs) phenomenal. Love watching him race and really being primary in Red Bull, being number two, you know, obviously to Max and then going over to being a sub driver and then finally getting his uh, yet another shot at Williams. He's just continuing to impress. What about you? Yep. What, what was Absolutely. Your surprise? Same thing. Both the Williams and McLaren's jumps in performance were just amazing. FP1, Albon's third fastest. Logan Sargent's further, you know, quite a ways back down in his customary positions in the in the first practice. But by the second practice, they had they had all the new parts fitted to Sargent's car. He was able to get on top of the, they got the car dialed in. And he winds up in FP2, he was fifth in the standings. But Albon was even more impressive in the fact that in FP2, he was only, we had Max, of course, at the top of the charts for both, you know, FP1, 2, and 3. Um, FP2, Checo's second, but Alex Albon's in third in both. And in the FP2, there was only two tenths of a second between Albon and Carlos Seitz. That right. is just insane. How the Williams is that? to just come on. It yeah. is just so unbelievably impressive. I just, it just flabbergasted me. You yeah. know, when I, I thought I, I'm not reading that right. That can't be that Williams <laughs> cannot have just unlocked. Exactly. You know, yeah, exactly. exactly. All these upgrades. Think about it at the beginning of the season. Would you ever thought, yeah, McLaren's probably going to do pretty well. And Williams is going to do pretty good too. I those two yeah. teams I no. would still pick be midfield easily at at best if, and with Williams yeah, best, I really yeah. didn't see them being much beyond uh you know a back marker you know yeah so it was just it was amazing to see Williams just with these new up I mean we saw it a little bit last week with at the last race Albon was in the top ten made it into Q three and everything with the upgrades so I mean we knew that the upgrades were were definitely a giant leap over the previous iteration of the car but for them to make that big of a jump is just but again it takes an we've talked about this before since the williams family sold the team to the american group the cash infusions that they received they're starting to bear fruit and we are starting to see uh 
we're starting to see a really reignited Williams and it's I'm I'm yeah. hoping that this isn't a fluke and the changes that they made will be good kind of leapfrog them for you know two three races and then they're going to be back at the back of the grid I'm hoping to see Williams continue to elevate their performance as I talked about earlier today in the podcast I always have been a huge fan of Nigel Mansell and when Mansell was driving for Williams and winning all these races and coming Oh, so close to winning championships before he finally, you know, was able to do it in 92. But I was always a huge fan of Williams and everything. And to see them fall to the back of the grid just broke my heart. And it just, it makes me so happy to see them starting to hopefully turn that corner and bring themselves back up the order, you know, back to, to, to where you know they used to be so i and i'm 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 just i'm so excited about it that i'm just i'm hoping that it holds and i'm hoping this wasn't you know a, a fluke and that we're going to see them slip back from positive to negative talk about mercedes and <laughs> yeah it's just I, I, it's just it's such a weird with, with mercedes it's been just such a weird up and down season because they are such a strong team that come race day, they're able to make up places in, you know, their race pace is, it's kind of a, a an inverse X because you have certain teams that are, especially like early on in the season, you had like the teams like Haas and stuff who qualifying their pace was fantastic. You had them, you know, making it into Q3 several times. You had Hulkenberg's absolutely brilliant qualifying session at Canada but because of the car the tire degradation was so bad that their race pace <clears throat> would fall way off and then you would have the opposite where you would have Mercedes who may not necessarily qualify well but their race pace was so good and they were able to sustain a much higher level they weren't having to save the because they're not having to save the car they're able to make up places and work their way up, up the up the grid during the race so it's kind of like you have this x you know of you know certain teams that it's like race pace is here and it drops off and then you've got mercedes who's qualifying pace and practice pace isn't great and then shoots off come race day well checko <laughs> yep. yep absolutely most of the practice sessions williams looking so strong in the practices was just a breath of fresh air it was it was just fantastic We'll talk about qualifying now. It starts off wet, you know, rains just before. So we had kind of a, a drying track at the start of qualifying. Almost every single, all but one of the teams went out on intermediates the first time around. I believe it was one of the Haases, but don't quote me on that, who went out on full wets and they didn't stay for very long up there yeah, on the full wets. All. They were back yeah, in almost immediately. If I remember correctly, I think you're right. I think it was Hulkenberg, but again, don't quote me on that. Saw a little bit of a drop off in the Williams. The Williams didn't handle the wet quite as well. But now talking about qualifying, we have to talk about McLaren. Completely amazed in a great way. <laughs> we were talking about, mm -hmm. I, I think it was the second podcast we were making fun of, or maybe it was the third one actually, that Danny and Rick had as many points as the entire McLaren team. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> but, much, but much better qualifying, and obviously we'll talk about it, but hey, they got one and two in qualifying. Yeah, two so and three. Yeah, two and three in qualifying. They had, and I didn't think that they were going to be able to pull it through, not like they, they, they did. I mean, the last two, 
two years, especially even with Danny on on board, the the pace of that car just was not good. It, no matter even with Norris, I mean, the the best that he was getting what was fifth, I think maybe fourth last year. Yeah, that, that he got. So he was a really tough place for him. And now with the the pace as fast as it is and challenging Red Bull, it's an amazing thing to see how far that they've come and truly just a short amount of time. Yes, that's another one of the teams that had some upgrades at Canada. I believe they also had some upgrades at Miami and saw the, a little bit of the performance. But then the, this time around with the upgrades that they brought to Silverstone, it just it's it's like it was like they flipped a switch. I mean, they you know, we were talking about what, you know, Williams was the surprise of the practices and everything. McLaren was right up there with them during most in most of the practice sessions. Yeah. I think there was one Norris had some electrical gremlins, I think. Don't quote me on that, but I remember one of them had some gremlins and everything that but during practice they were quick. They were right up there, but come qualifying, it was like someone flipped a switch and now all of a sudden they were storming. As everybody knows, Max, you know, blitzed the field once again, comes out on top during qualifying and everything. But Norris is only not even a full two tenths of a second. It was like 1.4 tenths of a second off of Max's qualifying pace. And even more surprisingly, we had Piastri was only another tenth of a second off of Norris. So, I mean, McLaren just had in qualifying with the drying track and everything, they hit the setup perfectly with the exception of Max blitz the rest of the field and it was just such yeah. a surprise for them to be just that strong in qualifying but to see the 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 ear-to-ear -ear grin on zach brown's face <laughs> <laughs> after, after the end of qualifying was just amazing <laughs> yes i'm not going to be fired at the end of the season <laughs> yes absolutely and then we had really strong qualifying effort from Ferrari. They weren't far off, you know, in fourth and fifth place. So they were still in a really strong position. And then, you know, we had Russell and Hamilton bringing up after that. And then Alex Albon, even though the car wasn't quite as good in the damp conditions, it was still really, really good. And so Albon makes it into Q3 and comes up with another brilliant eighth starting position followed up by Alonso and Gasly in the top 10 during Q3 so we had a really interesting qualifying session like what we've said in the past the wet definitely helps it's that equalizer it's always fun to watch races and then once it started drying mm -hmm. out it, it was really good we talked about this just <clears> briefly <throat> but Checo good grief man <laughs> oh fourth race in a row that he has failed to make Q3 yeah, so uh, he got. Yeah, we got. We have to talk about that. Yeah, he. It's just crazy that. Yeah, he he finishes, and we'll talk about this in the race portion. But he he finishes okay. You know, he finishes in, um, but sixth place, I believe, and, <laughs> but, that that's that's okay. But he's not able to support Max at all, and now he's what 99 points adrift of max whereas just a few races mm -hmm. ago he was you know neck and neck red bull is fast enough to make up that midfield but it's not enough he needs to get faster i understand a couple of those qualifiers weren't truly his fault but at the end of the day 
it doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is is the championships, and he's just not cutting it right now. Right now, he's not. So I'm sure that he's already starting to feel the heat. You know, oh no but, doubt about but, it. You're at Red Bull. Yeah, yeah. he's feeling the heat. Yeah, he probably. Felt oh yeah, it you know he's line. feeling the heat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no doubt about that. That's yeah, one thing. Absolutely, about they love you when you're winning, and when you're not, they are not afraid of cutting you loose. Yes, absolutely. They they are not afraid at all, and they you know if there's somebody out there who is faster and hungrier, they are more than willing to promote them at the drop of a yep. hat. You know, exactly. <laughs> yep. So ask Gasly and Albon. Yeah, yeah. But you know, to be fair though, <laughs> for for both of them, Horner at least found them positions, right? He just didn't say, "Hey, uh, yes. see you later." He at least, yeah, that's with, very with Gasly, true. He was demoted to AlphaTauri, which is where he started anyway. And then with Albon, he he became a, a a sub driver. So look at him now; it worked perfectly for him. You know, he maybe just needed yep. that worked out very well for him. Your confidence to to go through. All right, so let's go into the race now. What a start to the race. That was just awesome. It was probably <laughs> one of the most exciting starts that we've had this season. Hands down, because otherwise it's always Max leading. Not only did Norris lead, but Piastri was right beside him. He almost took second from Max. Almost, you know, I'm sure yes. Max is like, wait, this isn't supposed to happen. What's what's going on here? <laughs> you know, how many laps did, did he lead? Uh, like three or four laps, uh, Lando? Led. I want to say it was four laps. Four laps. Okay, four laps. It was just so great to see another car in the lead. And like you said last podcast, just relax. Mac is winning right now, but it's not always going to be the case. Here's a contender, a viable contender. Actually, two now that can contend, mm -hmm. starting to at least, with Red Bull. Mm -hmm. So we'll see here yes. in the next you know, couple of races or so what actually happens next. How yeah, far, how, how much better they can go, or maybe, maybe there's more optimization that Red Bull can pull out, and they don't get close next few races. We'll see. Like you said, it, it's just fantastic to see Norris up there leading early, and then oh yeah, at his first podium this year. It's his first podium in quite a while. I had to look it up. That I think it's been over a year since Lando's last podium. Oh, it was just absolutely brilliant. I think we're finally starting to see Lando has finally got a car that's that can showcase his potential and his true talent. Because as I've said before, I think that given the right car, I firmly believe Lando is a future F1 champion. And we saw it this weekend with McLaren seems to be turning that corner to get back to the top where they used to be back when Ron Dennis was, was running the show. And I think Lando is finally going to have a car that's able to keep up with his potential and the, the yeah. pace that he is capable of. It's great to see that he's yes. that McLaren's doing all the right things right now. Yes, absolutely. I, I, t I couldn't agree more. And I, I think it is, it is such a cool thing. It's a well-known fact that Max and Lando are very good friends off the track. But the thing is, though, is that <laughs> this makes me wonder, though, is how long is that friendship going to last once Norris <laughs> starts regularly challenging Max? Lando was holding Max up until the point where they finally enabled DRS. 
It wasn't until they enabled DRS that Max was finally able to really close that That's gap. It. Now, you know, you're absolutely right. I know, forgot it, about that so, point. Yeah, I mean, it was. It's not like Lando was blocking him and holding him up. It wasn't until they actually, you know, enabled DRS that Max was able to overtake Norris. And even at the end of the race, Norris was was right there in the thick of it. That if Max had bobbled it or anything else, because he was only. 3.6 3.7 seconds adrift at the end of the race yeah i mean compared much. to earlier this year where max was winning by 20 30 seconds lando was right there one bad not of slower cars or anything else and lando could have possibly been right there in challenging max even so he was right there on max's tail all the way up until the very end of the race piastri with the exception of he pitted at the wrong time that allowed Lewis to jump him. Piastri was literally right on Lewis's tail when at the, at the checkered flag. I mean, he was literally less than a second. He was nine tenths of a second of Lewis that given another two or three laps, he probably could have gotten past Lewis and, and been on the podium himself. It's all a woulda, coulda, shoulda type thing. But uh, <laughs> yeah, Piastri, for all the, the crap that we gave him at the beginning of the season and that you and I talked about before we started the podcast, when you and I would, would talk, you know, privately about Piastri, we were not, we were not real high on Piastri, but I got to say that all the, the, the political crap from last season aside, Zach Brown is looking like an absolute genius for signing this kid. He has absolutely yeah. been the revelation of the rookies this season. And why he was willing to spend so much money on getting Danny out and getting him in didn't make a whole lot of sense yes. back then, but now it's starting to see some of the genius. Absolutely. And he is definitely looking like a genius. So <laughs> <laughs> now we can hit some of the, the less good news. Oh, Ferrari, 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 Ferrari. Oh. <laughs> Once good again, grief, man. great qualifying, terrible race. Sites and Leclerc qualify very well fourth and fifth i think in qualifying yeah. i think is what we yeah. said so in qualifying they're fourth and fifth and then during the race you know bad pit stops everything else and tires are degrading something terrible during the race itself and in the end they wind up ninth and tenth i mean they still score points but in the grand scheme of things even though neither one of them is really going to be in the the championship on the driver level you still got to gather those points for the team and two points and one point is not going to yeah. cut it, you no, know, especially all. for, yeah, especially for a team with the proud history that Ferrari has. You just, exactly. you're it. just not getting the job done. And it's like, I just, when I think of Ferrari, I just shake my head. I just, I just don't understand how things could be this bad for a team with this much talent, both in the drivers and in the support team the mechanics the the technicians the engineers the aerodynamicists there is so much talent at ferrari and there is so much money at ferrari that, yeah, <laughs> that exactly. i just shake my head that how could they be this bad on race day i know so on to aston martin silverstone was another track that just didn't really treat the aston martin very well for some reason they didn't have a great qualifying Alonzo comes home in seventh. Lance comes home in 14th, winds up having a big kerfuffle with, with Gasly, ends up getting called on the carpet by the stewards and everything. So just not a great weekend for Aston Martin. And I just, I'm hoping that 
with the next race, I'm hoping that they are able to turn things around because as I heard somebody else, you know, say, it's like, you've got Red Bull and Max that are at the pinnacle right now, but it's now with the resurgence of Williams and McLaren, you've got a really great three-way fight for second place in the Constructors' Championship. And if Ferrari can get things righted again and, and return to their early season form, then, I mean, you could very well have a very crazy four or five-way fight for the second place. Right. Oh, that's, I mean, I, I'm loving it. I am absolutely loving it. But at the same time, it's like I was telling uh, someone else is that it's starting to feel like for what I considered kind of the golden age of Formula One back in the late 80s, early 90s, where you had McLaren and Williams and Ferrari all fighting at the top of the, at the, for the, you know, for supremacy at the top of the, at the top of the heap. Yeah. <laughs> it feels like a complete <laughs> throwback now with, you know, with the resurgence of McLaren and Williams and everything. And then if Ferrari, like I said, if Ferrari can get the ship righted and then with Aston Martin being in there, you, and you can never count out Mercedes, you can't deny their race pace. And yeah. he, Hamilton is such a fierce competitor. There's a reason why he's won seven world championships. You know, yes, admittedly, he did six of them in what was arguably heads and shoulders above all the rest in the Mercedes cars that he's had. But, you know, you give him even a fighting chance and he's going to be there. Mercedes being there. Yeah, you've definitely got, you know, a four or five way fight for everybody else behind Red Bull and it's just it's going to be so much fun to watch it will you know, be going forward through the, through the remainder of this season no doubt about it yep. so talking through right. Red Bull's dominance yet again okay. Max leads although so, yep. not nearly as much as he was leading before like you said earlier he yep. only led by a, you know funny he only led by three seconds but still compared to the other races where he's winning by a easy 20 25 second margin he's able to go through and change tires and still remain in the lead still red bull is very dominant just looking at checo he's finishing set sixth from back of the grid because of his poor qualifying mm -hmm. still getting up there pretty yeah. quick but he's not able to support max so he's not able no. to get to that level where he really needs to be although he's able to pass and, and overtake and and his race looks good. He just, he needs to get over whatever that issue is in, in qualifying so he can actually start doing a little bit better and, and placing better and have yep, absolutely for next year because right now it's pretty <laughs> iffy. What are your thoughts? Yeah, Checo has definitely got people breathing down his neck that he's going to have to right the ship in very quick fashion or he might find himself either out of a seat or demoted to one of the other teams you know, right. demoted to a less competitive team unless he can really get it together. Now, admittedly, not everything has been his fault. He did have one qualifying where I, I forget which race it was. He had one qualifying where it was, that was a time when the mechanical gremlins raised their ugly head and he had a terrible qualifying, but then, and then there was another one where they took, they just completely got the setup wrong in qualifying at Canada. He brought it into the garage, thought he had enough time to go out for one more flying lap. But the problem was, is that they had misjudged the time and he didn't have enough time to get back out for another lap. And so he was got screwed there, but you're right. You know, Checo is, he's definitely got to change the trajectory of his qualifying and he's going to have to do it fast. Because yeah. the Constructors' Championship is just as important to Red Bull as the driving championship is. 
and I would say even more so. Yeah, that's true. It very much, you know, it really is because the constructors championship, the money that comes from the FIA for winning that the constructors championship is to bring in if they just have one driver if winning the world championship but they come in second or third in the constructors championship it's definitely going to make a big difference in the wallet and so that's another reason why checo is going to need to get it together knowing the type of person and the type of racer that checo is i think he can do it but it's just he's going to have to have the support of the team too so we've talked about practice, we've talked about qualifying, we've talked about the race. So let's talk about a couple of the things that were going on this weekend outside of the, the normal goings-on at the track. First of all, we have to talk about the 11th team that was present at the race this weekend. Apparently they started shooting Brad Pitt's F1 movie that is being that Lewis Hamilton is one of the producers on and he's working as a consultant trying to make sure that they get the realism for the movie as close as they possibly can. I'm hoping that they don't take too many liberties with it. You know, we've seen that before in the past where people have tried to do movies about racing, Formula One and IndyCar where they have all the consultants in the world trying to make everything as authentic as possible, but then the director and the editors take too many liberties and completely destroy all the work that the, that the consultants and the experts try to impart during the filming of the movie. And my God, I hope they don't screw it up. Last thing that uh, I wanted to mention, though, is that with Brad Pitt being there, uh, Sky Sports actually, during their broadcast, um, actually had an interview between Brad Pitt and Martin Brundle. And as everybody knows, I was not uh, real high on Brad Pitt after his snubbing of Martin Brundle on the grid at Austin last year. And for him, for Martin Brundle, showed what a truly magnificent professional he was in the fact that he was able to conduct a pretty... Uh, a, a really, really good and uh, really, really insightful interview, despite everything that happened. And this could come down to editing, but at no point during the interview did Pitt ever acknowledge his snubbing last year. But he may have said something off camera or said something or made attrition to Brundle and the Sky Sports team that we didn't see on camera. I'm going to take and I'm going to pull back a little bit of my condemnation of Brad Pitt and hopefully he has learned his lesson going forward as they continue to shoot bits and parts of the movie that he will lean upon the expertise. And I'm really hopeful that they will use the Sky Sports team for some of like the voiceovers and things like that during the racing footage. The Sky Sports team does just a phenomenal job and all the kudos to them. All right, then it's about time to wrap it up. Thank you for listening to F1 Break Check. If you have enjoyed what you heard, don't miss a single episode by hitting that subscribe button in your favorite podcatcher. Also, help us grow by sharing us with your friends and fellow F1 fans. We value your feedback and passion, so please take a moment to review our podcast. Your reviews help us grow and improve, and it means the world to us. Share your thoughts, rate us, and let us know how we can make the show experience even better. F1 Break Check is a production of Break Check Media. For your hosts Scott Vick and Corey Brune, until next time stay inside track limits, and try not to pitch it in the kitty litter. <laughs>